Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is sports dietitian and Olympic trials qualifying marathoner, Kelsey Pontius. Kelsey grew up playing soccer and eventually transitioned to becoming a distance runner, quite a fast one at that. In her career as a dietitian, she has a focus on injury healing and gut function. And in this episode, we are talking about the topic, the overall concept of quote unquote, clean eating, the rules behaviors and beliefs we have around foods and assigning good and bad labels to different foods or food groups and the concept of orthorexia and the spectrum along which all of these different behaviors can fall. So this is not about necessarily eating disorders, but about certain ways of thinking about food or that you might not even realize are actually undermining your ability to do the things you want to do in your running. Kelsey, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Elizabeth. I've been really excited to hop on here with you. So for those those listeners who don't know you, go ahead and tell us about yourself. How did you become a runner and how did you become a sports dietitian? Oh man. So it goes all the way back to, I grew up playing soccer and, um, I ended up playing college soccer. And, um, shortly after I became a runner because shortly after like ending my collegiate career, um, I had to do something. So running is so simple and we just all love the beauty of like only needing a pair of shoes, um, to kind of stay in shape after, you know, you might be ending a more structured part of being an athlete. And so that's exactly what I did. Um, so I would run like three to five miles. I don't know. I didn't have a GPS watch. I would just go and do a route. And, um, I eventually started working at a local lemon while still finishing my degree, um, after I was done playing soccer and a lot of the employees, like the way that they interacted with the community was going out to these events and somebody invited me to a 50 K And I didn't know, like, I didn't understand like the distance or all what it entailed. I was the queen at this time because I had left having a a soccer team as, and they were all my best friends to not having friends. So I just wanted to make friends. So I said yes to everything. And all of a sudden I was training for a 50 K and I'd never ran in like not even a 5k. So, um, Somewhere out on the course, I'm sure with being underfueled and also very tired, I, I fell in love with like the racing component and the culture around running. Um, and so after that, I placed pretty well for like never running a race before. And I got a lot of encouragement to keep going and eventually like start, hired a coach and kind of was drinking the Kool-Aid from there. Um, as a soccer player, I got my um, first really bad injury when I was a teenager. I tore my ACL super common injury for a female athlete. And I was so curious of how I could heal faster. And um, the doctor told me, 
I would take nine months to heal. And I was like, but wait a minute, I know that injury should only take six. And so I was like really stubborn in my rehab back from my ACL tear. It was also like the most important year of my college recruiting. And my number one goal was to play division one soccer growing up. So I was pretty devastated. So I wanted to get back on the field super quickly. Um, circa, gosh, like 2007 or eight, when I did that, there wasn't a lot of sports nutrition information just widely available. I had had a really normal upbringing around food, fortunately, that I'm grateful for now, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about. But um, I never thought about like, other than I knew I needed to eat carbs before I played a game or before I went to practice, but I never really thought about the role of nutrition and performance. And so that was kind of the time away from the sport where I really started becoming interested in it. Um, looking back, I didn't come across the information that I think would have been helpful. Um, but um, that's kind of where the curiosity sparked. And I definitely was really curious of where I played soccer at. We didn't have a dietitian. Um, I'm actually the sports dietitian for the program I played for now, which is really cool because I'm able to tell them like, look, we didn't have all these resources back when I played. Um, so I would say that that was the biggest thing of always being a player that like, okay, the girl that's playing every minute of the game is eating, you know, a sloppy Joe. And then the girl that plays my position right now only eats salad. So what does that mean for me as an incoming freshman that wants more minutes? What should I eat? So I think I was always really curious around that. Thinking back now, and I played uh, sports in high school, there was no discussion around how to fuel the fact that you had to be in class all day and then go practice for two hours. Oh my God. It was like, maybe you were, don't forget your water bottle. And I went to a great school that educated us in a lot of different ways, but never seemed to touch on nutrition. Absolutely. And I can even remember being um, in high school and I was uh, in my friend group. I was one of the only athletes that was going to like, like you said, practice right after a lot of times, two practices after. And I can remember being a little embarrassed that like I had this like, I mean, I guess if you look back at it, like a normal lunch, like a sandwich, some chips, a fruit, like something like that, probably a Gatorade or something with me and being mortified in my group of friends that like they didn't eat. And I remember I was more hungry than I was embarrassed. So I always ate it. <laughs> but to your point, I work with a lot of high school athletes now. And um, I think that I think I would choose our problems, though, over their problems for sure of just not like lack of information, but, um, but not the wrong information either. So yeah, I think it's like a uh, pick your poison type of thing. Yeah. There's a, a stunning amount of misinformation and not even like, we're going to talk about orthorexia today and, you know, types of disordered eating and behaviors of disordered eating that we may not even realize are a problem for us. But there's also, I get I'm sure you do a lot of DMs from a lot of people just with general questions. And sometimes the premise of the questions I get is like not even rooted in, in fact, questions about how to burn more protein when running. And I'm like, wait, what, where'd you even hear that? That's not even, first of all, no, we don't wait, go back up and tell me, you know, where you learned this. And so those kinds of questions and that kind of miseducation are so hard to address because you've like no idea where they learned this. And it's so wrong. I can't agree with you more. And it's sometimes like, I feel like they hear something and then that's like, they're in like the tunnel vision almost of like must burn protein or, um, you know, fat adapting and everything is totally having a moment. And I have athletes that are so fixated 
on performance out the door, just like, how can I fat adapt better? And I have to like, take a step back. I'm like, but why? Like, why are we doing this? Like, what's the ultimate big goal? Because all of these things, like, what are you trying to get this to lead to? And I will fully freely admit, and anybody who's listened to this show before, especially on a nutrition episode, I, for several years, was like a hardcore, low-carb, keto, drink the Kool-Aid on, being that fat-adapted runner. And I understand kind of being from on the other side of it, like I understand the allure of that kind of, you know, I want to say mindset or when you learn something like that, it feels it. That's the problem with a lot of this stuff is that when you learn something, it it feels right or it it appeals to you in an emotional way. Like, oh, mm-hmm. all I have to do is just do this one simple thing. And for me to not only have gone through the process of educating myself and then to me for me to freely admit and say, I was saying things that were incorrect and ended up being bad for my health. And I fully and freely admit that I was 100% wrong um, as something that it definitely did not make me a better athlete in the long term. And so I understand for people who are, we're talking about orthorexia, like I said, if you have a mindset around certain ways of eating, it can feel like a very emotionally safe place to stick to that belief. And one of the hardest things is that realizing that maybe we're wrong about whatever, right? We hold a lot of beliefs and we sometimes hold on to them um, longer than we should because we just don't like being wrong. And the whole point about being a person is that you are supposed to grow, adapt, learn, change your mind, learn new information, all in the quest of just being better. So this episode is absolutely not an attack on anybody for what they believe, but we are going to discuss some ways that maybe information around food and fueling might have been misrepresented to you or represented to you in a way that is actually not helpful for you and identifying patterns around food that might actually be causing you harm instead of helping you. Yeah, no, I just really, really value you in terms of like acknowledging that. And um, I've listened to so many podcasts where people kind of said the same that they like well-intended advice that they've shared with other people that um, they were deeply rooted in diet culture or somewhere on the spectrum of orthorexia, which I'll talk a little bit more about that spectrum. um, I'm sure as we conversate more, but yeah, I think that it can feel really tricky and it can feel like you're doing the right things. And I think the other troubling part is that for a lot of this, like the things that make us runners is we have similar personalities of being perfectionists and um, wanting to be high achievers. So this feels like another piece to that puzzle, I think, Elizabeth, of terms of like, oh, well, I want to get faster. I want to run further. I want to do everything I can to do be successful at running faster for longer distances. So I want to do whatever I can to help. So once people start putting out information and there's information out there of possibly what you can do to your diet to accomplish that, you're right. It's completely attractive. And, um, you know, no wonder people kind of jump on the bandwagon of that um, because it is so, so convincing. And like a lot of diets is that... it tends to work in the beginning, right? Like the reason people I think stick with some of these ways of eating is because at the very beginning it does work. And then 
like then you get the consequences and it stops working or something bad ends up happening, right? Because it's everything that we eat, like we're not getting an overnight reaction. It takes a while for our bodies to kind of wake up and realize, hey, like I'm I'm struggling here. You probably wouldn't stick with something if it made you feel terrible from day one. And I think that's what a lot of the trouble also is because it feels so good at the beginning. It's so common too, and that's part of the trickiness to feel good in the beginning. There's a lot of like scientific information around whether it's placebo effect or just changing things, um, especially if there are any changes to body composition or weight that can um, also kind of facilitate like a, a temporary performance benefit, um, having a reduction in weight. And so that too can kind of send that idea to people that like they're doing it right. They finally have the answers. They finally have fixed, like figured out the winning formula. Um, but then after I kind of see that temporary, um, rise in performance, and then they're kind of hit by the cascade of what might be the beginning of red S, which is relative energy deficiency in sport or, um, hormonal imbalances, maybe they don't exactly fit the criteria of Redis, um, or just other like plateau performance plateaus and so forth. And they're kind of moving on the direction of either, um, overtraining syndrome or Redis, um, one of the two. And it's hard to, it's digging a hole and it's hard to come out of, but you're kind of tricked in the beginning of like, oh, this is working for me. So we've been teasing for about 15 minutes, orthorexia, because that's our topic today. We're talking about orthorexia. Um, what is orthorexia? You know what, with doing a little bit of pulling notes together, I got so many good de definitions and I knew you're going to ask me this. So I like, I'm having a hard time picking the best one. Um, when I found, I most broadly found unhealthy definition, like just obsession with healthy food. The one that I personally like really landed for me was systematically avoid specific foods in belief they are not healthy. And I like that definition because I think the word belief is so important because it kind of goes back to what we were just saying a few moments ago of um, these beliefs that become like hardwired in our mind. And in our mind, we're not participating in any kind of disordered eating. We're doing what we know is best. It can feel virtuous to make the right decision yeah. about the food. Right, right. And almost like morality too, like of choosing the right food and being a good person. Whereas, you know, if I wanted to indulge in something or have something that didn't necessarily meet the criteria of specific rules that we're following, um, then we're bad. What does this look like then? Like you must see this all the time in, in a spectrum right? Because everything when it comes to these behaviors and beliefs is a spectrum. What is it? What does it look like kind of on the borderline end of the spectrum versus the this is genuinely an issue and we need to really treat this seriously end of the spectrum? Yeah. So I think the hard part is, and I think that this is why this is such a challenge is the spectrum is large. So when we talk about like Okay, so if not to say everyone's goal should be intuitive eating, but if we are just to call that as like maybe the reference point of being an intuitive eater, not overcomplicating things. And on the way other side was where we could start making formal diagnoses like anorexia, bulimia, things that I think society identifies, like, or maybe not identifies, but like understands the definition of those. 
then that's a really big spectrum if you think about it of where you might fall within that. Um, I was sharing with, with my husband this morning that I was going to be on this podcast and what we were talking about. And I was like, I fall on the spectrum. I think that as a runner and as someone that likes food and cares about quality, like it's just where on the spectrum do we fall and, um, not getting into the mindset of you have to be too sick in order to get help. So with my clients and kind of just not even with my clients, with my athletes, like being around the sport, hearing conversations and runs that I'm in, um, I think that it's a lot about worrying about food quality. So like, is this food organic or quote unquote clean or processed or whatever? Avoid going out, which really breaks my heart because I work with a lot of clients that, um, will avoid eating out or other social gatherings. So it can be extremely isolating. And then also you have to think about it, like not only is it isolating for that individual, but it also can impact relationships with other people and how they perceive you. Um, you know, worrying and fearing foods that don't make what meet whatever health standards you're looking for. Um, there's so many different ways people, uh, orthorexia manifests in terms of like what diet or what rules they're trying to follow. Um, but definitely, you know, fearing the ones that aren't up to speed, obsessively researching foods, um, trying to omit food groups altogether, compulsively checking ingredient labels. Um, I think you kind of get that idea, but I think like the words that I use the most is like obsessively and compulsively and stuff like that. I really love your point about how huge the spectrum is because again, I, I go back and talk about this in other ways, but it's like the dose makes the poison. Like just because you may have some behaviors around like me, I do prefer to buy organic food. And sometimes I will not buy the non-organic option, you know, if an organic one isn't available, but I'm not, you know, not eating because it's not organic. This is why it's so tricky. You can kind of have some of these choices that you make on a daily basis that may, if you like list them out in a different context, could look like something that was disordered eating. In context though, they do look like you just making normal choices in the choices that you make every day about the things that you eat. Right. And I think that there's a, there's a place for like gentle nutrition um, is kind of what we call it of educating and really getting to the bottom of, okay, like at the end of it, I got into dietetics because I also being, you know, wanting to understand sports nutrition, but I also was really interested in preventing chronic disease. And so it's like, at what point do we educate? And I think that that's often the rebuttal that we get with, um, when we bring up orthorexia and stuff like that, it's like, but what about like chronic disease? And I find that there's even misinformation around what causes chronic disease, but story for another time. Um, but yeah, I think that gentle nutrition in terms of how we want to feel, I know that if I eat cheesecake right before I go out on a run, I'm not going to feel the best. Like that's, that's pretty scientific. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not a more appropriate time to eat cheesecake, but I think that there, there are, there is room for it, but just knowing kind of where, um, where that boundary should be in terms of, is it um, very consuming for you? Is it impacting your relationships? Is it taking up space in your life where you can't focus on um, your training or even your work or your relationships, I think is kind of the hard boundary. The, the flip side rebuttal to this that I often hear, and I'm sure you, you hear and see this quite a lot, 
is that why shouldn't people want to make really healthy choices? And no, you should be choosing green vegetables over cheesecake for breakfast or before, you know, you, you should be eating healthy, quote unquote, healthy, nutritious foods. How dare you say that that is somehow wrong or bad? And that's not what we're saying. That's not the argument here. <laughs> yeah, I think too, also, I think it was glamorized, you know, I would say at least in the entire time of me being a dietitian, which is five years. So I would say it's probably accurate to say in the last five or 10 years that it's pretty glamorized that health is how you move your body and what foods you put in your mouth or foods or drinks. Um, and I think that we're starting to explain more that health is way more than those things. So health is in your relationships, health is your mental health, and all of those, those different things that are kind of pillars that make us a healthy human being. And so if you're putting too much weight into one of those categories, then you're going to become imbalanced. So if you miss out on a social opportunity, or if you are fixated on something, then that is not healthy. Um, and I'm not saying to not eat your green vegetables or anything. Of course, I'm a dietitian. I love vegetables as much as the next dietitian. But um, definitely, there's a huge trend, which is why we're having this conversation with the obsession behind it. If you've listened to this show for any length of time, you've probably, despite my best efforts to edit it out, heard some dogs barking in the background. Those are my dogs. I have three of them and they're very, very good dogs, but sometimes they do bark. My dogs are my fur babies and I love them so much. I love all dogs and that is one of the reasons I am so excited about what Gooder Sunglasses is doing right now. Their annual collaboration with Wags and Walks, a special pair of sunglasses specifically with proceeds going to the nonprofit Wags and Walks, which helps break down the stigma of rescuing dogs and decreasing the number of dogs euthanized in local shelters and finding a forever home for every dog out there. So if you are a dog person or just a person with eyes who needs a pair of sunglasses, you can go to gooder.com and get your own pair of sunglasses, whether it's the in dog we trust or another one of the many, many options they have. And you can also save 15% off your next order on gooder.com using code RUNEXP. That's code R-U-N-E-X-P on gooder.com. That's G-O-O-D-R.com. Look good, run gooder. I feel like there's also something very aspirational and almost like socioeconomically related to this is that when you see, you know, celebrities' fridges and reality TV and all the obsession with fridges of what the rich people eat, they're always packed to the gills with these like really those types of clean eating brands and it's very expensive to eat in that kind of way. And I think it's also something that we don't really talk about where, you know, to be able to make those choices is something that is a, you know, is a privilege for a lot of people that they don't, a lot of other people don't have, but to also, I think, realize that it is mimicking another aspect, I think, celebrity culture and that aspirational, I too would love a fridge packed with $100 worth of kale and weird organic stuff, right? But that's just not, you know, so I think kind of, we talked about earlier, you know, kind of um, misunderstanding or, or misinterpreting what the actual message is. I think this also is kind of part of it, what we're seeing, and we're not really understanding what we're seeing, but then we try to mimic it, and then it becomes a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And then, also, we're seeing a photo of what is like 
kind of a postcard of that person's life. It's not, it's a highlight reel. So they might show their fridge, but what we have to remember, they also have the financial means to hire someone to prepare or, you know, prepare that food for them. They're not as concerned about food waste as maybe someone that doesn't have the financial means. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts. Whereas, you know, I would have to go to the grocery store myself. Maybe I do this Instacart, but either way, I would have to make that happen for me in the fridge. I would be the one preparing that food. So that's more time investment um, from like, so more money as far as groceries, more time investment. Um, and we're only just seeing a photo that's like, oh, if I could just do that. But if it were that simple of here, just eat the food, then um, then yeah, it wouldn't be so difficult for people. Nutrition, it, it it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, it can be simple, but it's definitely not easy. And those are two very different things. And I think that also people definitely crave that um, this is the right way to do it. These are the answers, which is why a lot of these diets is like, oh, good. I finally have a set of rules. Perfect. And I think that people don't like that, like the beauty is in the gray because that's a really scary place. Yeah. It's hard to make hard decisions. And if you have to make hard decisions every single day, every time you put something in your mouth, that's exhausting. Of course, you'd prefer to just be told, here's the yes list, here's the no list. All I have to do is just follow the list and follow my, you know, the meal plan I downloaded off the internet or what this list of things I'm not supposed to eat is. It's so much easier to live in the black and white, even if it's not necessarily better for you. I mean, I completely get it. And I didn't even think about it that way, Elizabeth, until you know, when you become the dietitian that everybody knows, like people growing up, like your high school friends or whatever, they're like, oh yeah, just talk this per to this person. This is what they do. And this um, girl from my high school one time, like reached out to me and I didn't understand this. I'm so grateful that she said this. And she was like, hey, my wedding's in a few um, months. Um, how do I get better at the keto diet? And I was like, oh, the keto diet, never. And she was, she just wrote back and she was like, it's super simple and I'm super busy right now. So that's what I want to do. And I was like, okay, like so much to unpack there, but it was the first time I saw it in the light of like clear crystal, like rules that someone can follow and not overthink. I mean, obviously I can't imagine what the questions you get from the people in your life, knowing that you're a, you know, <laughs> have a graduate degree in nutrition. I'm nutrition adjacent. Like I'm very upfront the fact that I am a, I'm a running coach first and foremost. I know the basics of performance nutrition. No, I will not tell you what to eat for dinner. That's outside my purview. And I still get a, a lot of questions from people about, is this good or bad? Am I allowed to eat this? And like, that is, yeah, I mean, First of all, do we have time to unpack what good and bad really mean? Like this is a philosophical conversation, but um, tell us why assigning those labels to food is ends up actually, even though it may seem simple in the long run, may actually be doing us a, doing us a disservice. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in human nature, first off, what I kind of think of, I call it the bow and arrow theory. So it's like the more, and for those of you listening, you can't see me making a bow and arrow, but the further back you pull the bow, the the further that arrow is going to go. So the more you restrict, the more you restrict, the more you say, don't eat the ice cream. I, I have to have ice cream in my house because my kids love ice cream. I'm not going to tell my kids no, but I can't have it. I can't have it. You make it through a few days. 
and then finally you cave. I don't know. Have you ever had this experience, Elizabeth? Where I know I have, where I've tried not to eat the thing. And then when you eat the thing, you eat the whole thing. Um, so that's like my first thought and of like the binge restrict cycle. So you restrict, restrict, restrict. And then all of a sudden human nature, we want what we can't have. We overdo it. And then we're back into a restrict cycle. And that is not only physically taking a toll on your body in terms of, you know, causing like blood sugar to go up and down. And it's emotionally very stressful to be in that cycle. And then you try to go out on a run and cancel your calories. And then like you bonk on the run and then you crave things again. So um, I have a graphic on my Instagram of this whole situation happening because I see it so much. Um, and I've been there too. And so I think that that's a big reason, um, you know, of not overcomplicating food. I think the other thing is too, is that remembering that you are not, you are not what you eat, unpopular opinion, but you are not what you eat, especially in terms of morality or anything. You really can eat a burger and it mean have no meaning other than that you ate a burger for dinner and you're going to eat it, enjoy it, and then move on with your life. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the, that's kind of the biggest things as far as not labeling foods. Um, and the more you understand, like you said, like professionals have gone to school to understand. So through our lens, we're thinking about like possibly your bad food that you have put into a category um, of the nutrients that are in that food and what they provide. And maybe what they provide is just joy. But coming back to the conversation that joy also arguably makes us healthy. Something I realized it was a belief that I held. And if I, you know, I'm not special. If I've thought this, I'm sure somebody else had, is that when I was really restricting my carbohydrate intake and I would see other runners and athletes saying like, yo, here's my post-run snack. And they would post carbs and some protein. And I would say, oh, the little voice in my head said, well, of course they can eat carbs. They're so thin or they have such low body fat or they're so fit or right. So it was me equating like I, I wasn't allowed to have certain food groups until I looked a certain way. And I've also seen this extended in conversations when people talk about professional athletes because people are obsessed with what professional athletes eat. <laughs> they are obsessed with what pro runners actually eat. And I've heard some disbelief amongst, you know, normal recreational runners about when a pro athlete tells you how much to eat in a day, they're like, that can't be true. That's ridiculous. They would they would never be able to eat that much. And I'm thinking, yeah, they're 120 miles per week. That's kind of the minimum they should be eating. Um, and I think, again, kind of a lot of these things that we make consciously or unconsciously assign what we're allowed to eat or not allowed to eat based on the body size or shape that we are currently in or what we see people looking like. Yeah, totally. And just like to go a level further, like, you know, the size of our body doesn't dictate our health, which is a whole nother thing. Like I've seen plenty of people that I'll upfront say like, yeah, I die to look like them. But again, we don't know like the story behind how they made themselves look that way. Or like maybe you meet their mom and dad and their mom and dad, like there's a clear genetic, like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree situation. Um, so you're right. Um, and that is sometimes like a pain point. Um, for me, as far as working with the running community is that people do become obsessed of what professional athletes use. And so most of the time it comes in form of them seeing what supplements or whatever they're taking and thinks that that's the magic pill for them to be Sarah Hall or something like that. And I'm like, no, listen, if like only that were easy, right? <laughs> 
Right. Um, and they pay her a lot of money to say that because that's her career. Um, so I think that it can, it can be so problematic and remembering that professional athletes, a they're a genetic specimen because they were able to get to that level. You and I could run 120 miles a week and still not be Sarah Hall. Um, so there's a little bit of genetic disposition going on. Um, they're not only in like their, their performance abilities, but even in like their genetic makeup of like what the size and shape of their body takes. So that's, that's a huge determinant of that. And then also um, you bringing up the point of their training, that's their full-time job. And so if you're trying to emulate their training, um, then that's going to be an uphill battle. If you have like a family, um, a full-time job and everything. So it's a completely different situation. Are there any specific recurring behaviors or beliefs that you specifically see with runners when it comes to orthorexia or restricting certain food groups or beliefs about good and bad foods? Yeah, I think that a lot of times I have a I have a Facebook community and a lot of times like I'll I'll just throw out a question of like what's your biggest nutrition goal just to kind of generate conversation within like that little community and it's it's so telling sometimes because my admin and I, we she's um, training to be a dietitian, so she has a lot of knowledge. Um, we kind of joke that we can t like do a TED talk on carbohydrates and how to um, pre-run fuel, how to intra-run fuel, how to recover, and how important carbs are and how they work in our body, how we store them and everything. And then like Monday morning, we'll be like, "What's your number one nutrition um, goal?" And people will say like eat less carbs. Um, um, so I think that like one of the beliefs and this isn't, I mean, we already touched on this is like the idea of clean eating translates into fast times. Um, and that it has to be perfect in order to, they just like, I think they envision a block of training where they hit all their paces, they don't put anything that they've considered bad into their diet. And then it leads to this like heroic race effort, I would say is like, at least how I see it transpiring for a lot of the groups that I work in, where as you and I both know, it's the very opposite that your body's not necessarily, obviously, there's optimal nutrition, but the number one priority during marathon training is that you have enough energy to sustain that that level of training. Something I see a lot as a coach as, and I've done this as my myself, and I think this is kind of a human nature is that we, we way over plan or over expect like, oh, this next training cycle, mm. I'm finally gonna commit to my strength training and I'm gonna never miss a session and I'm gonna get up early for every single long run and my diet's gonna be perfect and I'm gonna do all these things and make all these overnight changes in my life for the next four or five months. and in, and then obviously, because we're human, that's impossible. There's no such thing as perfection. You you do the best you can every single day. When we hit that first speed bump of like, ooh, I wasn't allowed to have that. And then the next day I slept in and had to do my long run late. And then like it snowballs. And then by week three of marathon training, they're like lying on the couch depressed, right? So and that's just, I see that all not, you know, obviously it doesn't quite go that far, but that's a really common thing that I see. 
Oh, totally. No, I always say the number, I have two number two reasons why people um, fail with their nutrition goals, whether no matter what the goal is, it could be performance, it could be something entirely different. The The first thing is that um, they, they expect to be perfect and they create this large goal and it's too um, restrictive or too rigid or something like that. Um, the second thing, the follow-up to the point number one is that they give up too soon. So they pick this rigid thing and then they can't meet it. So they give up too soon. And so I would say that's definitely a huge trend that, that I would witness the same thing. One of the big dangers I see as a layperson in restricting wholesale, restricting food groups or setting really restrictive rules around what you can and cannot eat is the danger that you just have so few options available to you that you're going to end up underfueled. Oh, totally. And think about it too, like not just with um, your day-to-day training, but if you are trying to race somewhere, I always encourage my athletes, I'm like, races are no new things. Of course, when we travel, our nutrition is a question mark, but if you don't know what it's like to, you know, eat a basic sandwich, or if you're someone for a medical reason that can't have a sandwich, but eat, have something else that's very common and very boring marathon. Um, and not just to get stuck on marathons, but run nutrition, um, especially in the proximate timing around a race, it should be boring. And so if you don't have access to something boring that your tummy is happy with, and you've practiced and traveled with, because our gut's going to adapt to the things that we have trialed in our training, then that's going to make your race experience that much more stressful and potentially have GI issues during a race. And this is even something extending out where, you know, if you're traveling for a big race, again, again, not to hop on marathons, but these tend to be the most logistically complicated races. Let's say you're traveling (laughs) for a big race. You've invested probably at this point, thousands of dollars into not only race entry fees, but travel and your gear. And maybe you've hired a coach and all these, and your, whatever your training plan is, and you get to your destination and your diet is so restrictive that none of the pre-race meal options available to you are all on your list. What do you do? You've basically run, you've destroyed your race before you've even hit the start line. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, with marathons in general, just having the experience of racing, um, it's always like the least expected thing my coach always says at some point you're going to get hit in the face. And I can look back at every marathon I've ran and give you the point at which was unexpected came and hit me in the face. Um, because that's marathons. Um, and there's so many moving parts. And so, um, there's so many unexpected things. And so, um, just having, being able to control the controllables and again, not like relinquishing like the need for control, but just creating less barriers, I think is what we're getting at, um, I think is huge. And so being more flexible, being able to adapt better, being, um, having less barriers so that you can be more successful, I think is the, the number one thing and not overcomplicating things. I have a couple other things I want to ask you about, but something, since we're on the topic of racing, something I've gotten questions about and then immediately referred people. You, first of all, the premise of your question is a little off. Let me refer you to a dietitian asking about clean sources of race fuel. What's the cleanest gel? That question, mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, nails on a chalkboard. That's, I don't like, first of all, I don't know if this is a question that's coming from, like you said, is this a, a, an ingredients perspective? Is this an organic perspective? Is this like, a, I'm afraid of carbs, I think sugar is bad perspective. Have you gotten that question before? All the time, all the time. 
Um, so I think I dive into that question a little bit more of, because again, like that orthorexia definition, everyone's going to have a different definition of clean, which is also confusing for whoever's receiving that question. Um, so I think I try to dive into that question a little bit more. So I completely like understand what they mean. So either I can direct them in the right direction or, um, there's more times than not, there's room for a little bit of education. Um, so a lot of times they might say, um, you know, what's the most natural, clean, whatever gel. And so, um, I try to unpack it and say, okay, so tell me a little bit more about why you're looking for that. And um, they might say, well, you know, the other ones have, um, again, if there's kids in the room, you might want to put earmuffs on them, um, sugary shit and all of those gels, <laughs> um, you know, and so I don't put that into my body. My body's a temple. And so um, then there's room for education because um, we, I can kind of explain, okay, well, we store energy in forms of glycogen and our muscles and liver and blah, blah, blah. And then we break those down into simple sugars. And so really um, we have, that's a finite source. So during a race, we need some quick access. So really simple sugars is like the cash in our pocket. Um, so while we don't want to hang out and watch Netflix and eat gels, not the time, it's actually super appropriate for that time. And that there aren't negative health consequences of taking it during a race. And even studies have shown that it can actually be better um, in terms of our recovery and inflammation if our body has substrates to pull from. And so I think that there's a lot of times education point, but really understanding a little bit more and then um, breaking down to the practicality of sports nutrition products and why they're designed the way they are. Um, because I don't want to run a road race, maybe an ultra race, but I don't want to run a road race that doesn't have aid stations with sweet potatoes in my pockets. I just don't want to. Yeah. There's a time and a place for potatoes and that's usually in the woods. <laughs> Great. Something I also hear again, I, like I said, I get a lot of nutrition questions and that's not even what I do, um, is that when I eat certain, you know, commercially available gels like goo and personally goo is my gel. Like I freaking love goo. It works really great yeah. for me. Um, is that anytime I eat really simple sugars or anything that I always have gut issues, I always, you know, it doesn't sit well with me. Um, and this can might even extend not just from the race, you know, the race fueling or the run fueling, but when I eat, I can tell that I've made the wrong choice, quote unquote, with food when I choose to eat sugar, because I always feel bad and I have gut issues and, you know, all these things happen. What's happening here? So many things could be happening. Um, if they're scared of gels, I've also found that they might be a little bit rigid around carbohydrates, which might lend itself to a high fiber diet. I've seen a high fiber diet, like lots of salads and raw veggies a ton of times. The other thing that I think of is that they haven't trained their gut um, in their training and they're just trying to tolerate it um, in desperate measures such as a race or maybe if they are doing a long run and then all of a sudden in a 20 miler or whatever, they're like, oh, I should probably take a gel and just come in cold with that gel without any other practicing at like mile 14. Then of course, like there's actually kind of what I was saying earlier um, with training in the gut, there's actually like little absorption sites along our GI tract that it's like, oh, cool, Elizabeth, you've had this before. Let's make more absorption sites to make this easier for you. Um, so 
I think that that's kind of where my brain goes, or maybe the hydration along with the gel um, wasn't appropriate or the electrolyte content. Those are all reasons they could be having electrolyte issues. But I always encourage people don't just step off the gas of overall fueling because you had one bad experience um, because it could be a lot of different things. I think it's sometimes good to give some examples. I know we've talked a bit more philosophically about this topic and kind of broadly about the principles of nutrition, but one of the ways that I know that I learn best is when I hear somebody tell their experience or I hear a concrete example and go, oh my God, that's me. Um, how? Have you, what are some other common beliefs or things that people have told you when it comes to restrictive eating that doesn't need the clinical definition of, like you said, a diagnosable eating disorder, but that's something you definitely say, you know, what this very commonly held belief or behavior is actually not normal. So again, common does not mean normal. Even if all your friends are doing it, it doesn't mean that it's normal. It just means that it's common. What are some other things that you might see about in runners specifically when it comes to nutrition like this? Ooh, so I think definitely prioritizing race weight over other things that impact performance. So sometimes I'll level with runners. I'm like, okay, let's just say that weight matters, that it's a, but it's a moving part in the sea of many. And so if we're putting that one on a pedestal and then not like thinking about the other areas, then eventually like the other areas are going to suffer more and you're left with nothing. Um, so I would say that's a really big thing is prioritizing race weight of not even talking about like I'm going to improve my sleep this training cycle. I'm going to make sure that my long run fueling is up to speed. I'm going to time my protein and I'm a little bit better, make sure I meet my protein needs. Like when we just put all of the weight in the weight basket, then um, that was kind of a double, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Um, then that can be extremely problematic. And a lot of times when I was looking at researching this, like the formal definition of orthorexia, um, I think that, the, again, the hard part is it doesn't have a place in terms of diagnosis. It's not in like what's known as the DSM-5, which is like a diagnostic manual that formalizes it. So it makes like even as a provider, hard to diagnose, and then other medical professionals hard to diagnose. Um, so it's definitely like a tricky gray area, I think, a lot of times that people aren't familiar with. Um, I would say, you know, trying to restrict food groups is a really big thing. Um, running fasted, um, skipping recovery fuel, um, underfueling overall around exercise um, and really taking, you know, we all have Strava's, Garmin's, all of that data that tells us, you know, a an idea of how many calories we expended and trying to match that perfectly to each day's expenditure through running and not considering how our bodies burn energy otherwise, like activities of daily living, existing organ function, all of these other other things that require energy, I think is a huge thing too. I didn't even think about the the calorie counters because I mean, at that point, for me, I know looking at them, I'm like, that's not even, that's just kind of like a random number generator for me. Right. Um, for people I feel like who are kind of trying to find the the easy way and not being super, you know, super rigid in their rules, but say, well, oh, well, I'm just counting macros. And they're, but they're really rigid about macros and they never deviate from whatever their assigned macros are. I've seen mm -hmm. some people tell me what their 
you know, tell me what you're eating, you know, just share with me, what is your macro coach right. told you to eat? And it's like 1200 calories a day. It's just shockingly low numbers. And they're like, you know, I did the math for somebody um, once and just say like, did your, did your coach, does your coach know your macro coach, excuse me, not your run coach, some random macro coach. Does your macro coach right. know that you're only eating between 12 and 1400 calories a day? And she said, oh, I never really like did the math on the numbers. And I was like, well, you're dangerously under eating. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of, again, like it goes to the question of like, why was these numbers chosen? Like, I don't know who picked out 1200 calories, but if I ever see you, we're going to have words. Um, because like, it's so random and that's like not enough. I used to, in my very first job as a dietitian, I worked in a long-term care facility and that's like sometimes what the math came out to be for like 90 year old tiny little old ladies, not even men that laid in bed all day. And so um, that's a good reference. Point. I don't know who picked out that number. It's glaring though for me and very concerning. Um, and then macros too. Like I definitely have clients that obsess over knowing the macros and everything. And um, sometimes I'm here for it and not being obsessed and prioritizing the macros, but I understand, you know, that is a part of it, but there's so many more important things with nutrition other than macros. Um, so many other things to capitalize on and the micros behind the macros and relationship with food and not obsessively weighing a chicken breast in the middle of Christmas dinner. I don't know, but um, yeah, I think that you know, that is a really big thing of not pointing out, well, why are you doing this? And more times than not, I think when people have had like, quote unquote, macro coaches, which I don't know what kind of formal training they need to become that. But um, in the space of running, it's always a huge deficit, at least in my personal experience. It's not to say that you should be completely unaware, like, you know, proper nutrition doesn't mean just mm -hmm. going around and eating whatever you see and like putting it into your mouth right. without any right. sort of forethought. But it's very, like you said, at the beginning of this conversation, like, for any sort of gray area, especially when it comes to food, and food is such a charged emotional topic for many people, depending on the household they grew up in, the relationship they have with their bodies, like it's really scary to not feel like you have control or even some semblance of control over that part of your life. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and I think too, like if it's never just the food though, too. Normally when you feel like you need that control, I'm like, let's dive a little deeper. And obviously that's kind of outside of my scope of practice. And I would have to encourage a different kind of provider, but like, what, why are we trying to control this? Um, you know, what else are we trying to control those kinds of questions? And so, um, yeah, I think that I understand the need and want to, but a lot of times it's a little bit deeper. Another thing that I, I've specifically heard, and I know that you must see this a lot, is somebody asked me why they kept getting injured because their diet was so clean. Oh, and yeah. I was like, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> sirens. Um, yeah, I think that I just um, started that injury program I was sharing you about 
with you about. And um, one of the very first points for soft tissue and bone injuries, we separated um, the two different types of injuries. Um, but both of them in the epicenter of the whole program is energy availability. And so energy availability, that's just a really fancy way to say that um, basically your body has enough energy to do like basic, like take care of its organ function, um, hormone processes, all of these other things after we've stolen what we're going to steal through exercise. So if for whatever reason, you're on a particular calorie count of a diet, and then you go and do your 20 mile run and you kind of burn up all those calories. Um, but you still have these basic needs, like your body will physically let you go out and run most of the time you'd be in really late stages, but it's kind of, it's running on fumes. There's a cost to it, to your body. And so that's where we start seeing um, in female, um, them use, lose their cycles or injuries happen um, in male and female with, with that. Um, because like, you know, compromises your musculoskeletal system, um, collagen, stuff like that. Um, if you don't have enough energy to, to kind of handle that part of your body after you've done your training. And while, you know, I definitely feel like women may be the face of what quote unquote eating disorder or disordered eating looks like, it's actually really common amongst athletes are at higher risk in general, but also male runners too. And I don't know, I'm sure you did see this, Jake Riley. Um, who's a, an American marathoner, and he came in second at the Olympic marathon trials in 2020. Yeah. And he came out with a post recently that said that he'd been recently diagnosed with red S. It used to be called the female triad, then we became the athlete triad, but it basically is chronic patterns of low energy availability resulting in significant health issues. And he was very upfront in his experience in saying that I was trying to lose weight because I thought it was going to make me faster. That one of the top guys in our sport is susceptible to this kind of, oh, I just need to like tighten up my diet and lose a little bit of weight. And he ended up crashing out of some big races because of that. Yeah, I was so proud of him, Elizabeth, for sharing. I thought that was so impactful that he was that candid. There's actually a really, really popular um, male professional runner. I, I won't say who it is, but it's someone that had a huge career that I believe had read us and that won't come out and say he had read us. And I think if he did, it would be a game changer for the sport. Um, so I was really, really proud of Jake for calling it what it was and being so humble um, in terms of sharing because so many people are going to benefit from that, that if, because again, runners are obsessed with pro runners. And so if they can learn from him, like I, as soon as he shared it, I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you. And also I'll be your dietitian, Jake, if you need one. Um, <laughs> in case you're listening, Jake. <laughs> in case you're listening, Jake, like holla, um, I'll help you. So no, I think that that was so, so glaring of like how, how like the magnitude of this problem and how deep it is. And Jake had been a around the sport for so long, obviously, to get to his level and still with that like athlete maturity and everything, because going back to professional runners, I do find with the ones that I've worked with a lot of them, um, not to say they've never fallen on the spectrum or they don't live on the spectrum. Most of them do. 
but at the same time, they're able to manage things because they're, they know their bodies, they want long careers and they know that, um, having one season, kind of like what we saw with Jake, that's not sustainable to be like the Emma Coburns, the Sarah Halls that have, they've been relevant for a really, really long time. And when you, um, you kind of play with this energy availability fire, then you might have one or two good seasons and then you're irrelevant. And they kind of known that because they've seen a trend so much. And that's basically what he said. And I think what I mentioned in the yeah. beginning is that when he first started, dropped a couple of pounds, he did get faster, but it was very short lived. Mm -hmm. It was like you get a couple months boost and all you're doing is riding on borrowed time and underneath all you're doing is like chipping away at the foundation underneath you as you're trying to climb. And all of a sudden, then you like tumble down the other side, which is not a gentle slope. It's a cliff. It is. And then it's also so difficult because um, there's so many like hormones at play. Um, it's so difficult to um, dig out of that. And it takes a lot of time. I've definitely worked on that with professional athletes on the other side of that. And it is a lot of consistency um, with anyone working on your nutrition takes a lot of consistency, but we have to remember these are, this is these people's careers. So the fact that their body's going to take a long time to get back to where they can produce results that keep them relevant or keep their sponsors or keep them able to win prize money from races and um, keep their careers afloat. Um, it takes a lot of time and consistency to dig out and a lot of athletes don't come back. So um, not to not to scare anyone, but definitely something that I think of in terms of helping athletes kind of dig out of it or catching the warning signs. This is why we're talking about the warning signs so that it's easier to attack it when there's warning signs than on the other end of it. Something I say to my athletes, if we ever do talk about body composition, again, my instinct and my first thing I do is if you really want this kind of advice, I really would like you to work with a dietitian. But I do, like I said, counsel them on performance fueling. But something I say to them is, look, even if you were trying to lose weight, let's say, let's pretend that our goal here is for you to lose weight, you would still fuel before, during, and after your sessions. That's non-negotiable. Even if the goal was weight loss, you never don't fuel around your workouts. Yes, you crushed it. Like, yes, that is not something we compromise on. I'll be honest. I know there's a lot of dietitians that won't entertain that. My thought process, Elizabeth, if somebody does want to work on body composition, I'm very particular of, I had to tell a lady yesterday, I'm not a right fit for her because she wanted to work on it, just the nature of how unhealthy it was. But um, if it's healthy, appropriate, and we're not in the bulk of training, there are times that I will support someone in working with in body composition in lower phases of training. And so there, it's not that they're not training altogether, but they're trained like lower training. Um, not in the middle of so marathon training. Right. Correct. And so I think that a lot of times, um, if we can safely attack it and I make it well known, like, Hey, we're going to do this for a little bit, but this is a temporary thing. And then we're going to start performance fueling. And, but there's still that we don't play with any kind of calories during and, you know, spoiler alert, if you play with calories there, it's just going to backfire later anyway. Um, so no, I totally agree with you that those are non-negotiable calories to play around with. So if somebody's listening to this episode and kind of thinking, gee, maybe some of these behaviors and, you know, thought patterns, I kind of see myself in some of these and yeah, I do feel anxious around food. And I guess I kind of do have a lot of food rules. What are some things that they can do to start unpacking that or maybe learning how to, I don't want to say let go a little bit, but 
ways that they can address some of the restrictions or behaviors or rules they have around food that might be holding them back? Yeah, I love that question. So I think that, you know, while I would love the answer to be like, go work with a dietitian and then maybe consider a therapist too. That's like my plan A answer, of course, but I think that not everyone, again, that's privilege, right? And so um, not everyone can do that. So I think that there's a lot of really great um, resources. I would you know, look for resources of intuitive eating. Um, there's, um, I'm drawing a blank, but actually the first author of intuitive eating, she ran in the Olympic. She, okay. So she doesn't even market herself as a runner that I didn't know she was a runner. Um, but she, she ran in the Olympic trials in like the eighties. And so I felt like really connected with her because I did too, but not in the eighties in the 2020. But I was like, holy cow, she doesn't market herself as a sports dietitian or as a runner, but her, um, Evelyn Tribble um, wrote Intuitive Eating. It's a really great, like it's an older resource, but it's an oldie, but a goodie. Um, but what I like about it, Elizabeth, is it asks a lot of the questions that like helps you to understand that there might be an issue of like making list of foods that you deem as healthy. And um, yeah, there's, there's like a workbook component that's really, really nice that I think that can be like a lot of really good self-help. Um, I think too, um, you know, following other really great dietitians in terms of understanding what fueling means. So on social medias and stuff like that, I'm a really big fan of um, Featherstone Nutrition. So Megan, I'm really good friends with Kylie, Fly Nutrition, Starla is amazing. I'm good friends with, with all of them. Um, all all previous guests on this show, they all have their own episodes. Yeah, they're so great. They're so great. And so I think that if you follow things like enough that a lot of times like their voices can kind of echo um, and maybe you're not in a place to work with one of them, but you are in a place to start understanding like the difference between restrictive behaviors and fueling. And maybe you pick out when I work with a client, I don't you know, try to overhaul their diets overnight. So if a restrictive eater came to me, I would probably pick the meal that they're restricting the most and be like, hey, can we work on just adding this for this one meal a day, like this component? And so trying to build consistency with that, um, digging into why you're restricting and seeing what those beliefs are, if you think it will make you faster. Um, I've even had athletes write a list of other things that make you faster that isn't related to body size and building a lot of confidence that way. I know that makes me, whenever I'm struggling with one area, um, I was struggling with my sleep a lot in the spring and I made a list of all of the other things that I was doing right. And I was like, Psh, of course you need sleep. But in the moment it was like, put other things at play for me. Um, so yeah, I think I threw out some like really random things, but things that, you know, if you can't move on to working one-on-one -on -one with a dietitian or working on with a therapist of ways that you can kind of accomplish some self-help. And I think it really looks like diving deep into like, where are these beliefs rooted in and seeing if there's like, you could do a fun challenge and play devil's advocate with yourself. And I think that's where the true work really happens. And I don't think we've said this yet, but if you have a, a, a diet that's restricted for medical reasons, obviously this mm -hmm. is not what we're talking about. If you cannot eat certain things or even certain, you know, large groups of things, like if you have celiac disease or some other medical condition, like yeah. we're not saying you should like dive into the emotions around your relationship with wheat. Like, no, you're sick. It's okay. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to force yourself to eat something that's not good for you. Um, yeah. But what are, what are some more subtle signs 
I guess not red flags, but like yellow flags. If an, if an athlete in conversation with you says something where you're thinking it, it sounds like an innocuous statement, but you're thinking, hold on, that's not something that I would expect to hear. Oh yeah. That's a really good question. Um, so I would say a lot of times if like they were giving me like a little diet recall, they would say things like, well, on my rest day, you know, I'm not running too much. So I don't, I don't need all those, whether it's carbs or calories or whatever, that's a really big one of just being like, well, you know, I don't need. So again, there's that belief that we must earn our food or that there's a start and stop for our body requiring nutrition. Um, a lot of times them saying, I have no willpower or I have no discipline um, is a really big thing. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if it's a matter of willpower and discipline, like your body has biologic needs and it's asking you because it hasn't met those for you to please satisfy those. Um, so I would say, yeah, those would be ones that I think that maybe they've heard it for years because their parents have chronic dieted, or maybe it's that, um, you know, they think that the number one goal of their eating is to control it and try to manage their body size is the number one goal. Um, but yeah, they don't necessarily recognize. And I think it's normally like trying to control their eating that I think is kind of subtle. The one last thing I want to ask you about, and I, I think I already know the face you're going to make, um, cheat days. Tell, yeah, okay, that's, that's the for you. Nobody else can see this, but I'm like, yeah, that's the face. Um, either like people who tell me they build in cheat days or they align their cheat days to like their long run day or the fact that they have cheat days. Tell me your professional opinion about something like that. Yeah, I think that, so we have to remember good fueling and getting a little bit more intuitive with your eating and listen to hunger cues, all of these things that, um, I would say are positive in eating behaviors that doesn't necessarily mean that we always need to eat more food. It could mean in some places, but it's also the other side of that too, is being able to recognize fullness cues and getting attuned to those. And so I think cheat days, I think it's just an excuse to dismiss all of the things that we've practiced and, um, and, disconnect from our bodies, which isn't going to help us long term. It's just an excuse to like restrict binge all over again. Um, also, if we're needing that, it's like where in the week or whatever, are we telling ourselves that something is bad or that we're not allowed to have it? So if there's a cheat day, then there's inevitable food rules attached to. I was going to say for me, it's kind of an extension of like when you have really restricted rules that allow you to feel safe. The opposite of that is like if it's a quote unquote cheat day, it's a free for all and that's no rules. So that's also a, also a way to feel safe around food. Like you either have all the rules or you have no rules. And in both cases, like it doesn't require you to make hard decisions because you have your rules. Yeah. And then like on a day when you have no rules to speak, you can, you know, you don't have to think about it. And then I don't know about anybody else, but you know, you know, engaging in cheat days it ne you never really feel good afterwards, emotionally or physically. Right, right. It's, um, I think too, like such a good filter that I like to use is like, how do you want to feel? And so you want to feel fueled, you want to feel energized, you want, you don't want to feel like you are lethargic, like those types of things kind of come up for a lot of people. And so certainly like over consuming 
um, foods in mass quantities, or even if it's eating something that you wouldn't normally eat, I would argue you can have that on any day of the week because it's Tuesday and you want it, um, rather than giving that one food a lot of power and disconnecting from our bodies. Because I think that that's something, and I think that a lot of times too, like when I talk about like hunger and fullness and different conversation, but as runners, there's reasons why our hunger and fullness cues can be suppressed. But um, it reminds me of running a lot. Like, what do you do when like, you know, whatever pace is marathon pace have to run it. And then you go outside and it's hot and you have a 50 mile per hour headwind. Like you have to tap into your body, your Garmin telling you what pace it is, isn't as helpful. Um, or you can DNF, but like tapping into your body. So it's kind of the same thing of being able to kind of listen to these cues and listen to your body. And it's great that we have all these metrics to measure things, but at the end of the day, you know, tapping into your body is going to allow you to get to the finish line, you know, in those circumstances, probably a little bit better than getting all upset and stressed out over what your Garmin's telling you. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really great point is that it's really just an extension of what you're trying to do in your training and being in tune with your body, learning what your body needs, what it's telling you when to push, when not to push. Um, because that is, you know, if you have rigid rules around the paces you're allowed to run, right. If you can't adjust at all in the moment for the 50 mile an hour headwind, the fact it's 90 degrees outside, you're going to have it. You're yeah. You're probably going to DNF to be honest. Um, and what I think is really interesting. I feel like people don't necessarily give nutrition enough credit. Like we give food all this power, but we don't actually give nutrition the credit that it's due. And I'll tell you this, not from like a, yes, it's important to keep you alive and make you healthy and help, help you live forever, but that the athletes I've had on this show who have made large performance gains later into their career, who were already fast before and became even faster, they all said one of the biggest changes they made was actually dialing into the nutritional needs. So not that they trained yeah. more or not that they ran faster or not that they like took the supplement, but they actually figured out what their nutritional needs were. And that's how they made their giant breakthrough. Yeah, that's so right. And that part of me is like, write that down, make that a stabby Instagram post. Take it, um, do it. <laughs> so good. Um, but you're exactly right. And I think that when people hear that, it could be easily like misinterpreted of, you know, must eat cleaner. Um, but like, I, I know exactly what you're saying because even being a professional and going to school for an ungodly amount of years to learn this at the end of the day, like I'm my own best guinea pig to like trial and error things. And I get really, really far away from like being like, eat like I do and run like I do because that's not helpful either. But just like lived experience in my own body as an elite marathoner, like I've gotten to trial and error things a lot. And that was something that like, as I've gotten more experience in the marathon of like dialing in, like when I say dialing in, like understanding numbers and traveling to races and knowing that you might be like stuck in an airplane the day before a race, but how are we going to meet those carb numbers and everything? And then seeing it pay off in like the back half of a 10 or the back half of a marathon in the last 10 K like, and feeling exactly what you're saying of feeling the difference and seeing my performance, um, do it. It's really, really cool. And then seeing it, you know, being like, okay, like this is where, um, textbook meets application and just building more confidence around, you know, some of the things that we are trained in and then, you know, seen it in my clients too, being able to take actual periodized nutrition and apply it to their training and see, um, some of the results. It's very cool to see it in action. Yeah. 
Kelsey, thank you so much for being here and having this sometimes difficult conversation. I know this is not always an easy topic for a lot of people to hear about or think about. It can be emotionally uncomfortable at times. Like I said, we tend to give food a lot of power. Um, It doesn't need to have power over you, but that's a conversation for a different day. Tell us how we can find, follow, work with you, what you're working on now. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Um, on Instagram, I'm sports dietitian, Kelsey. Um, I'm going to give you like three different things. Um, and I've gotten feedback to like, make it all the same. Um, but for now we're endurance, endurance sports nutrition in my Facebook community. Um, and then right now I am just finishing up an injury program to really help, um, that side of an athlete's nutrition, because just like you said, we tend to underestimate the role of nutrition and injury healing. We can do all the you know, calf raises that we want, but if we don't have the raw materials to heal an injury, then it's going to take a lot longer or maybe not heal at all. So that's what I've been working on as of recently. I'm also working on my specialist in sports dietetics right now. So I'm really close. I just have to take an exam and pass it. So that's what I'm up to these days. That's so exciting. So everything um, to find Kelsey will be linked in the show notes. You can find follow work with her. If you don't follow her on Instagram yet, you should. She throws out great nuggets of real wisdom and advice. (laughs) And, uh, And thank you for being here today. I appreciate your time and your experience. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.